The significance of the Virginia statute for establishing religious freedom reaches far beyond the borders of the Old Dominion. Its influence ultimately extended to the Supreme Court's interpretation of the separation of church and state. In his latest book, today's speaker tells the story of that statute, beginning with its background in the struggles of colonial dissenters against an oppressive Church of England. Displacing an established church by instituting religious freedom, the Virginia statute provided the most substantial guarantees of religious liberty in any state in the new nation. The effort to implement Jefferson's statute has even broader significance in its anticipation of the conflict that would occupy the whole country after the Supreme Court nationalized the religion clause of the First Amendment in the 1940s. Thomas E. Buckley, SJ, is currently professor in residence at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He taught in the history department there for 22 years after receiving his doctorate from the University of California at Santa Barbara in 1973. From 1996 to 2012, he was professor of modern Christian history at the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley. He's also held visiting positions at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, Santa Clara University, Boston College, and Peking University in Beijing. His research and writing has focused on the history of church and state in the United States. He's the author of Church and State in Revolutionary Virginia and The Great Catastrophe of My Life, Divorce in the Old Dominion. His most recent book is Establishing Religious Freedom, Jefferson's Statute in Virginia. Tom is an old friend of the VHS. In fact, he described himself as a VHS antique a few minutes ago, <laughs> which I think is deprecating. Uh, but he's been coming here for many, many years. He's done considerable research in our reading room for his many publications, and he has spoken here in the past. So it's a real treat to have him back today to talk about his latest book. Please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Tom Buckley. Thank you very much, Paul. It's really nice to be back here again. This is my home away from home when I'm in Richmond. In 1878, the Chief Justice of the United Supreme Court, Morrison Waite, if I can make this thing work. There he is. He looks like an antique there himself. In 1878, this Chief Justice had a major case to decide. Congress had recently outlawed polygamy, and the federal courts were enforcing that law in Utah Territory. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was asserting a right to practice polygamy on the grounds of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. For the first time, the Supreme Court was going to rule on that amendment. The Chief Justice was concerned he wanted to get it right. To whom would he look? Where would he go? To history, of course. So he consulted his old friend and neighbor in Washington, D.C., George Bancroft. George Bancroft, the most distinguished American historian of the era. He suggested, Bancroft suggested, that Waite should look to the works of 
Thomas Jefferson and Alexander, and, and uh, I was gonna say Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I'm in the wrong state. <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And especially the history of the passing of the statute for establishing religious freedom. Waite followed that advice. And his decision in Reynolds versus the United States fixed the course that the Supreme Court has followed ever since and its reliance on the Virginia statute. The relationship between church and state, it's among the most enduring concerns of Western civilization. But this embraces the two subjects my mother said I should never talk about in public, <laughs> religion and politics. My mother was a wise woman and she was absolutely right but the topic was just too fascinating for me to pass up. Because questions of church and state, of religion and politics, they embrace our deepest human concerns. How are we to live together as a people? And what place, if any, will God hold in our, soci in our society? Over the centuries, various resolutions to those questions have been attempted. In America, the most important resolution came right here in Virginia. It's the most important because the history and the documents of the Virginia Church State Settlement became the basis for the way in which the Supreme Court would interpret the First Amendment. Recall how that amendment begins. Congress shall make no law it did not apply to the states until the 1940s with the Cantwell and Everson decisions. And even then, they had been there in Reynolds, but they returned to the Virginia story in the 1940s to look at the history of the controversy again as they nationalized the First Amendment. So it's a Virginia story. It's a Virginia story, but it has national, and now with declarations of, of human rights, international ramifications. The centerpiece is Thomas Jefferson's famous statute. The history of that statute from its colonial background, its passage through the General Assembly, and the subsequent interpretation in the state, its lived history its lived history in Virginia for a century and a half. That's the subject of this book. Now back up to the beginning. Shortly after the foundation of Jamestown in 1607, Virginia's colonial government established the Church of England in law. It became in time the strongest legal establishment of religion in any of the British colonies. What did establishment mean? In a nutshell, as one astute Anglican clergyman explained at the time, <clears throat> the colonial church was incorporated and blended with the state. Incorporated and blended with the state. Church and state. But by the middle of the 18th century, by the middle of the 18th century, this did not sit well with the growing ranks of religious dissenters. 
particularly the Presbyterians and the Baptists. They challenged that established church's hegemony and they found a natural ally in enlightenment thought as embodied, for example, in the works of Jefferson and Madison. People like Jefferson and Mad Madison objected to the language of toleration, tolerating churches that were not part of the establishment. They didn't like toleration. They insisted instead on complete religious freedom. Their language prevailed in the 16th article of the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 and found its fullest expression a decade later in Jefferson statute. By this time, most Virginians accepted the principle that people were entitled to religious liberty, but they fought about its implications. For example, a term like religion was susceptible to different meanings. As Jefferson, as pardon me, as George Mason wrote in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, religion was the duty we owe to our creator. Now think about that. Religion as duty. Jefferson in the statute would speak about religion as opinion. Or again, most Virginians believed that to have a republican system of government, you had to have virtuous citizenry. The government rested on the citizenry, so they had to be people of virtue. But Virginians disagreed about how you foster that virtue. Patrick Henry would say, religion and the church foster virtue. Jefferson preferred education and the schoolhouse. Or then again, what was the state's role in all of this? A real contentious point was individuals have rights. On this there was broad agreement. But did believers, believers who formed a church, did they have any corporate rights? Did they have any legal status? What if they wanted to be incorporated? And if they did, what was that church's relationship to the political community? So there's major issues at play here early on. Shortly after the American Revolution, the established Church of England reorganized itself into the Protestant Episcopal Church in Virginia. The state incorporated it as such in 1784 and reconfirmed its title to all of the colonial churches and property. At the same time, in 1784, the General Assembly considered a religious assessment, a bill that would tax everyone for the support of the religion of their choice. The former dissenters now cried foul. They saw incorporation of the Episcopal Church and the assessment proposal as a package deal. In their mind, it was designed to revive the old established church 
which had persecuted them and oppressed them. And after a massive petition campaign, a massive petition campaign, it's an incredible online collection that you can access. This incredible campaign led by the Baptists and the Presbyterians and assisted by Madison's famous memorial and remonstrance against a religious assessment. After this campaign, the legislature approved Jefferson's statute by an overwhelming vote. So it's in this context that the General Assembly approved Jefferson's statute in 1786. The next year, it repealed the Episcopal Incorporation Act. And a dozen years later, after a relentless petition campaign led this time by the Baptists, the legislature responded by voiding all previous laws dealing with religion. And there was a welter of them in Virginia. All those laws were repealed except Jefferson's statute for establishing religious freedom. Whoops, they did the wrong thing. It's an imperfect world. There we go. So that became the standard for interpreting Virginia's Bill of Rights and Constitution. Finally, in 1802, in the most remarkable socioeconomic socio revolution in revolutionary America, and that's for any state in the new union, the, le the legislature reneged on its earlier guarantees that the Episcopal Church would maintain all the churches and property of the colonial era. It reneged on those promises and provided for the seizure and the sale of all the glebe property, all the farmland property held by that church. An enormous amount of land across Virginia. No other state did that. This was a, a real revolutionary seizure of property that had been guaranteed. However, however, the legislature decided that the churches and the church plate, the vessels, and the burial grounds could be left in Episcopalian hands. In a stunning burst of naivete, the General Assembly proclaimed that this law was designed, quote, to reconcile all the good people of this commonwealth. <laughs> Reconciliation didn't have the chances of a snowfall, snowball in hell. And for the next century and a half, as evangelical Protestantism became the dominant religious force, Virginians wrangled over numerous church-state issues. How free was the church, the body of believers in civil society? How free was the church? Could it hold property? Intent on absolute separation of church and state, the legislature interpreted the statute to forbid the legal incorporation of churches and church-sponsored institutions with numerous consequences that the legislature had not really thought through. So, for example, here in Richmond, Joseph Gallego of Gallego Mills died and left a bequest to the local Catholic community 
to build a church. Well, he made the bequest in his will, but a Virginia court voided the bequest on the grounds that while the request had been made, there was no entity known in law that existed who could receive the bequest. For a church to hold property without elaborate subterfuges took decades to achieve. And even then, the amount of land a church could own was very carefully fixed by the legislature in the bills. Or then again, were the clergy full citizens? The voters of Matthews County in Tidewater elected Humphrey Billups to the House of Delegates in 1826. Although no petition from Matthews or elsewhere challenged his election, some legislators, want, legislators wanted to disqualify him on the grounds that he was a Methodist preacher. Virginia's Constitution of 1776 specifically excluded clergy from serving in the assembly. But 10 years later, 10 years later, in the same building, the legislature approved Jefferson's statute for religious freedom. Its preamble, the preamble to Jefferson's statute, proclaimed that a religious test for holding public office violated natural rights. A religious test violated natural rights. The enacting clause concluded this way. Religious opinion should not diminish, enlarge, or affect anyone's civil capacity. What about Mr. Billups? What about his rights and civil capacity? In refusing to seat him in the legislature, the committee argued that, quote, while our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions, yet, quote, our ancestors intended to keep separate church and step, state. Now, an historian happening on that scene might have fairly observed that church-state separation had not been the assembly's intent when, when it wrote the Constitution in 1776. But rather, that's the interpretation that Jefferson, in 1802, gave the First Amendment. And later, Virginians gave Jefferson statute. So separation of church and state. That occurs for the first time in the Danbury Baptist letters. You can search the online collections of the, of the uh, Library of Virginia in all the petitions. Nobody talks about separation of church and state. That was Jefferson's felicitous phrase. And now Virginians begin to say, well, that's what the statute of religious freedom means. Thanks to Humphrey Billups and the Matthew County voters, the legislators in 1827 found themselves entangled in church-state controversy. Now, surely we can sympathize with them. Issues of religious liberty and the respective claims of church and state have repeatedly divided our courts and our nation. The cases are familiar ones. Church property, for example. How much? 
Should it be tax exempt? Sabbath observance. Sabbath observance. It's in the law of God. Do we put the law of God into our human laws? Prayer in the legislature. Some say we need more prayer for the legislature. <laughs> but prayer in the legislature. You can always knock the legislature. That's the safest way to get a laugh. And we all know that. A chaplain. Should the legislature have a chaplain? If so, who should pay for the salary? Public funding for parochial education. Sabbath observance and so forth. Well over 150 cases have been litigated in the Supreme Court since the 1947 Everson decision in which the Supreme Court extended the First Amendment's Establishment Clause to the states. Speaking for the court, Justice Hugo Black pointed out that the Virginia statute had effect offered the most ironclad guarantee of religious liberty in the new United States. The First Amendment, Black concluded, intended to provide the same protection against government intrusion on religious liberty as the Virginia statute had afforded. Writing for the minority, Justice Rutledge embraced Black's interpretive approach, quote, no provision of the Constitution is more closely tied to or given content by its generating history than the religion clause of the First Amendment. Indeed, the Virginia statute belongs, he said, to the warp and woof of our constitutional tradition. So from the court's perspective in 1947, the First Amendment stipulated strict separation of church and state, not just in terms of the federal government now, but in terms of all the states in the Union. This was a wall of separation, as the justices quoted Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. At the beginning of the 19th century, and even before the controversy over, uh, over Billups, Virginians made, Virginians made similar claims. <clears throat> in this respect, the Virginia's church-state relationship differed notably from other states, but anticipated the direction the nation as a whole would one day take. But simply asserting separation language and invoking the First Amendment has not solved the church-state problematic in America. Nor did appeals to the statute settle church-state controversies in the Old Dominion. In his prize-winning study, a wonderful book, American Sphinx, His Life of Jefferson, Joseph Ellis expressed the received popular and scholarly wisdom when he claimed that Jefferson's, quote, most enduring legacy, his most enduring legacy, was, quote, religious freedom defined as the complete separation of church and state. But what did complete separation mean? Ellis didn't say. 
So establishing religious freedom, establishing religious freedom explores the lived experience of the statute in the Old Dominion and its prolonged and exhausting arguments, and they were exhausting, over church-state separation. 19th century Virginians were largely evangelical Protestants who wanted their society to maintain a Christian culture in areas such as marriage and education. So, should the state permit divorce? The Bible forbids it. To allow divorce and remarriage places the state in opposition to the express command of Christ in the New Testament. And certainly it violated the Anglican tradition embedded in Virginia's colonial history. It required the explosive issue of interracial sex before the legislature finally approved a single divorce, its first divorce, in the beginning of the 19th century. And not until the 1850s did the state constitution make provision for the courts to handle divorce. Church state? Or even more, even more uh, explosive, the area of education. Education was a huge battleground. The legislature became very nervous when the Methodist trustees of schools like Randolph-Macon and William and Henry asked for charters. Could the legislature do that? Could you charter a church-related school? Or did that cross the boundary line between separation of church and state? Now, those universities would get their charters, but only with the express, expressed proviso that as it was chartered by the state, it could never have on its faculty a professor of divinity or theology. What place did religion have, if any then, in secondary and elementary education? It's a great juxtaposition of pictures. From Mr. Jefferson's university to the humble one-room schoolhouse, what place did religion have? Virginia did not even have a public school system, as you probably know, until after the Civil War. And then, then the fight pitted two Presbyterian ministers against each other, Ruffner and Dabney. In 1868, the legislature suggested William proposed William Henry Ruffner as the first superintendent of public instruction. And Ruffner resigned from the ministry before taking that position. But Robert Louis Dabney, his confrere as a Presbyterian minister, argued vehemently against public education on both racial and religious grounds. If you had public schools for everybody, they would have to educate then the newly emancipated slaves. For Dabney, that was a waste of money. More important, though, Dabney argued that the state could not have any 
religious teaching in those schools because they were public and therefore fell under Jefferson statute. So you couldn't have religion taught in the school. But education without religion was blasphemy in his book. So Virginia should not have any public school. Ruffner fought back. His position on religion in the schools was very careful. There was no need, he said. There was no need, he argued, to pass any law or institute any regulation that would place religious education or the Bible into the curriculum. You don't pass any laws, you don't institute any regulations that require the Bible or any aspect of religion to be part of the education. You don't need it, he said. You don't need it. Religion will come in on its own. If the people want it, if the people want God in the schoolhouse, God will come in. The students and the teachers will bring God in. There's no need to lay down laws or formal procedure. He called that the Virginia system. Some years later, this was not good enough for the Richmond school authorities. There's that old song, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The Richmond school authorities debated resolutions to require Bible reading. It was being used infor informally in the Virginia schools. But some wanted it specified. The forces lined up on either side. Those in favor of specifying the Bible in education included most of the citizens Protestant clergy. But the two chief opponents were very interesting. The first major opponent was the rabbi at Beth Ahaba, Rabbi Kalish. He said there's no place to have religion required in the schools. The school should be completely secular. His was a very lonely voice until the pastor of First Baptist came back from vacation and got up in the pulpit and said the same thing. Upholding the Baptist tradition of church-state separation. The Reverend McDaniel agreed with Rabbi Kalish. There was no need to tinker with Ruffner's Virginia system, they argued, and the school board eventually sided with them. Virginians debated matters of church and state in legislative petitions, in courthouse arguments, in the newspapers, in assembly sessions, in church meetings, and four conventions. Each Virginia convention to draft a new constitution, the church-state issues come dragging up again. Establishing religious freedom, this book traces that history. It explores how and why the revolutionary generation of Virginians rejected the British model of an established church in favor of Jefferson's statute. How they and later generations of Virginians proceeded to use and abuse that statute. The revolving understandings of church-state separation 
and the ever-changing and shifting cultural contexts that determined those settlements. You know, history is wonderfully instructive. Consider Virginia's history, considers Virginia's history as a dry run for what happened in America since the Supreme Court nationalized the First Amendment and took over the interpretation, applying it to the states. As the last session of the court demonstrated, the session we just concluded, the struggle to find a balance between the competing claims of church and state, of religion and politics, that struggle is likely to continue for the foreseeable future. One wonders if it disturbs Mr. Jefferson. How often does he roll over in his grave as he, try to, as he tries to adjudicate between a Reverend Robertson and a Reverend Falwell, for example? Isn't it funny, right between Virginia Beach and Lynchburg, they buried Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I think those bones must move quite a bit. They must move quite a bit. But his work endures. His work endures. It's been a triumph in many ways in Virginia history. It's been a model for the country as a whole and understanding the Supreme Court. And it's been, now it's fascinating to see this thing move into international law. Thank you very much. Now, there may be some questions. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. The uh, statute was 1786, and shortly thereafter was the, in the Constitution. What were some of the sociological and economic factors that drove the nation toward uh, this religious freedom? Well, the religious freedom, uh, it wasn't just the nation. I mean, it wasn't just Virginia. It was um, in those colonies that had already had religious freedom, places like Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. Uh, and there were other places where the church, churches were established in different ways, like Massachusetts. So the First Amendment, in many ways, when the Constitution was drafted, they knew they were going to have to deal with this subject of religion. But the, the, the country was so pluralistic, you couldn't have required a, a, a single religion. So nationally, it wouldn't have worked. And there were all kinds of, I mean, if you don't, if you want to have the country work economically, politically, socially, you couldn't have a one church. So the First Amendment comes out of that. The, uh, the uh, Constitution of Virginia did not embody that statute until 1830. But the rest of the country looked at the Virginia model and thought it seems to work pretty well down there. So state after state that had uh, places where that, that were places where they uh, they uh, had a church-state relationship, like Massachusetts, for example, and Connecticut and New Hampshire, they got rid of those. So the Virginia model becomes national in the states. I don't know if I answered your question. I probably didn't, <laughs> but there were several parts to it. 
Sir, please. Anything more? The Everson decision, uh, what was the legal basis for the court to extend the First Amendment to the states? What was the legal basis for S Since this, the, the uh, First Amendment itself just says Congress shall make no law. That's right. So how did they extend that to the states? I think they, they had already done that before the Everson with the Cantwell decision. They had done that in the free exercise clause. The Everson was the no, the no establishment clause. I don't know the, the justification for the Everson case extending it to the states, I think it was a mistake. <laughs> I think the Supreme Court got itself involved in a whole porridge of mess by trying to, to decide every single state's issues. I think it was an issue that was best left to the states, but that's just my opinion, and it's a little late. <laughs> it's a little late. I don't know, there may, maybe there was a basis uh, um, there are some lawyers present who could, could clarify, well, how in the world did they get into this mess? I think they just asserted it. Do you feel the uh, recent Supreme Court decision allowing sectarian prayer at political or legislative meetings is consonant with Jefferson's statute? The way in which they made that case, in the Greece case, you mean? I've read the Greece case. That seems to be okay with me. I think it'd be very offensive if they did if they didn't if they didn't allow prayer. I think continually trying to push religion out of the public marketplace is a mistake. The question is, how does it get in? How do you allow it in? Can you allow it in on a non-sectarian basis? But I, I think you rouse the furies if you try to kick God out of the public square in America. Because God is going to be there. God's going to be there. And that's because I think the people want religion to have a place in our political society. Now, you know what's fascinating about that? That's a great question. That's a great issue. What's fascinating about that is when you see how this works in France. France has the system called laicite, you know? Laicite which is really rigid separation. And they did their best to maintain it, and by cracky, it's, not, it's beginning to come apart at the seams, just ever so gently, in a very, very secular society like France. It's beginning to crack. Um, please. It's very interesting, and you raised a, a side comment about uh, perhaps the uh, uh, Jefferson's religious freedom uh, being international, put into international law. Mm -hmm. uh, in thinking about the establishment of democracies and Republican form of government, uh, we fight over religion in government, but uh, do the two go pretty well together? Religion and government, do they go well together? In democracies, yeah, I think pretty well. I mean, if you look at the model we have in the United States and, and Canada and Western Europe, and, or Europe in general, and I mean, Africa now, 
I think they kind of go together. The, the trouble is that politicians will often try to use a religion to get into office and so forth. But, I, you know, you have to balance all that off. I think some of the best things America has ever done in our history have been done with a strong underlying strain of religion. Whether it's, it's Abraham Lincoln trying to explain the Civil War to the American people in the second inaugural address, magnificent. Abraham Lincoln, the greatest theologian ever to sit in the White House. Or whether it's Lyndon Johnson talking about civil rights in religious terms. I mean, I think some of the greatest achievements in this country have been founded on, uh, on religious principles. And why is that so? It's so because the American people share those. You know, how, how do you appeal? How do you get a person to go off to war and die for one's country? Unless somehow he or she knows that, that God is, has a role to play in all this. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Okay. Please. Uh, my name is Ben Garrett. I come to you from Matthews. First, I want to thank the Historical Society for doing these events. I've been a member for many years, and I can tell you the little cost is far weighed by the educational and entertainment events that are put on here, and I do appreciate that. I have The question I have, the three churches you showed, I believe, were Christ Church in Weems, Abington in uh, Gloucester, and uh, I did not recognize the other one, so I'd appreciate uh, knowing that. And one other comment, I find it very interesting that uh, Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Lincoln were two presidents that belonged to no uh, organized religion, but yet their impact on religion is far weighed by that fact. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think that was the, the, Yorktown was the uh, the other church, and you must know Mr. Billups' family. <laughs> Pardon me. The Billups and Mr. family. Mr. I knew I know the Billups family, and also Mr. John Warren Cook, who was one of the greatest speakers we ever had in the, okay. in the legislature of Virginia, right. too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, <laughs> if, if if I can get a picture of Humphrey Billups, I'd love it. <laughs> Can't find him anywhere. Sir, please. Thank you. How will we handle the Muslims in their Sharia law that they want to bring in? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I think, first of all, I think many Muslims the Muslims who come to the United States accept the United States. They want to come to this country on our terms. They don't want to bring in Sharia law. Certainly the women don't want it. I don't think, I don't think we have to worry about that. You know, uh, what I would suggest we do is take a hard look at what, how Europe deals with this. Take a hard look at how our forebearers over there, their descendants, see how, how Europe deals with it. But I think we're okay. Excuse me, I, th I thought the British 
had a community in, uh, around uh, Birmingham that uh, permitted this. Uh, not Sharia law. No, I, Sharia law does not super super uh, does not supersede uh, English law, British law. Did did Thomas Jefferson or um, any of the subsequent courts uh, delineate between spirituality and religion? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. That old term spirituality is a relatively new term, you know. Uh, we would have called it, in the Catholic tradition, we would have called it ascetical theology. Um, but, um, so spirituality is kind of a new thing. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. You know, that, that way of talking. That's a new, that's a new kind of thing. Yes, I recently heard on uh, public radio uh, an author discussing a book on a the similar subject, and he made reference in the 19th century to a significant group of uh, Americans, I, I think, who supported separation of church and state based on an anti-Catholic interpretation of that in the sense that they didn't want a, a religion that had a pope, if you will, or a, a, a political head who who headed up the entire religion. Can you address that? Uh, sure. You know, that was one of the great fears of letting Catholics into this country. And you, the question about the Sharia law and, and the Muslim population growing. Can you imagine that the terror it struck in the hearts of Americans to think that Catholics were coming in great numbers? And the next thing was coming over was the Pope. <laughs> well, they thought that. In fact, there's a wonderful, there was a wonderful book written by a clergyman in the 1850s about how the Pope was going to move into the Connecticut or the Mississippi River Valley, and Rome was going to be replaced by Cincinnati. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think that would cut it. But he might have wanted Southern California. But that, 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 that's a very good, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good parallel, I think. And, and there was, and there were grounds for fearing this because of the way in which the church made certain statements about um, the way that government should be organized and that Catholicism should be the dominant religion. And, and that really didn't get erased until Vatican II and its declaration on religious freedom. So thank you for that. Please, sir. I look around this room and I see my generation and such, but uh, I'm worried that a younger generation that seems to be moving away from a religious connection uh, might move forward and we just lose this protection of separation of, of church and state. Do you see that moving or am I just uh, being goofy? You know, I, well, I think it all depends on your one's perspective. My pers from my perspective, I don't see um, I don't see the the, the, the students, the, this next generation of young people, moving towards anything other than what we have now. Now, a lot of them are very enthusiastic evangelicals, but an awful lot are not. And I think they're going to have to duke that out later on, and I'm not going to be around to see it. <laughs> but I'm not worried about it. I think our own traditions, we have solidified our own tradition of church-state liberties and respect, mutual respect. 
I think in such a way that if we teach that in our schools, whether they're private schools or public schools, whether we teach that in our, in our churches, in our synagogues and temples, I think it's gonna be fine. And I think people who come to this country who are not part of our tradition yet will become part of our tradition when they come. Why? Because they'll look around and say, hey, this works. And people are not killing one another over religion. So that's a good thing. 